You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Welcome to week two of Walls Fall Down. This is a seven-week series, and we got five more to go, but today is going to be awesome. I think God's got something very specific for you today. And if you're new here at Sun Grove Church, we're so glad you're here, and you'll just pick up right where we are uh, in this series, and I think uh, you'll just find that the Lord has a very special message for you today. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I like going backpacking. I like getting out in the wilderness. I love just getting out in nature. And uh, I, I took my family this last week, just three days, just you know, travel one day, hike in, spend a day, hike out, and then uh, travel back to here to Sacramento. But we went up in the eastern Sierras to a place called Barney Lake, which is out of Bridgeport. And I've got a picture here uh, up on the screen behind you that we took. Uh, it's just beautiful early in the morning. This was actually, when we hiked in, it was cloudy. It was super windy up there. I mean, like down on the valley floor, I'm looking up in the Sierras going, this could be sketchy. It looks pretty bad up there, you know, just seeing the wind and, the, and the, just the immense, you know, clouds. And, and we hiked in, and, but finally it calmed down. This was right the morning that I actually had my backpack on my back taking this picture because we were hiking out. But it got all glassy and beautiful, and just uh, you get up in a place like that, you're like, this is like the promised land. It's so beautiful, and things are green. And then down here on the valley floor, you know, it's like, the desert. And uh, like, Lord, have you, have you seen our dry fields? God, have you seen the state of uh, California? But just beautiful to get out and get away. And you see something like this and you just, God reveals himself through creation, doesn't he? It's called general revelation that God uses through what we've seen, the ability to know that there is a God, that he exists, that there's something greater than ourselves. Well, that night, uh, we took a picture, I took a picture, I, I actually left the fish alone and traded photography equipment for fishing gear, and, uh, and I took this picture at night, and it's just unbelievable just to see here at the same lake, the stars reflecting off the lake and in the heavens, and just amazing just to see. When you see that, you realize that, that God calls each of these stars out by name that God planted them in the heavens, that, that they are there as a witness. They shine during the day when we can't see them, and they, and they come forth and, and proclaim God's greatness at night. The scriptures in Psalm 19.1 say, the heavens declare the greatness of God. And we see that when we look at the heavens, and we just go, God, and, and why? Why would God do that? Why do we see that? Why do we have that reaction? God created those things so that he gets the glory. None of us sit there and, and just say, oh, when I wish upon a star... We look at that and we go, there is more out there. And I know we live in such an indoor society as compared to many past ages. We live much more indoors. We live with electricity. And sometimes we lose some of that awe and wonder that gives God glory. And I can't help but wonder if the Hebrew people felt that way. They were in the desert and they had been miraculously freed from slavery in Egypt and they go out into the desert, and they, they're about to enter this promised land, this beautiful land, like that kind of land where it's good for agriculture. There's water. There's enough you know, water for everything, and it's just a wonderful land. And they're about to go there, but they send spies in, and only two spies believe they can do it, two of 12. And the nation of Israel believes the majority vote, the 10 who say, it's too big. It's too much. The nations are too great. They're not only more in number than us, they're stronger than us. We can't do it. And God gets upset with the Israelite people and he makes them wander around in the desert for 40 years until that generation of people died. All except for Caleb and Joshua, the two spies who believed. 
And now they have this chance again. Moses has died. Joshua is now leading the people to be strong and courageous to now take the land. Let's do now what we should have done 40 years ago. And he's leading the people into this promised land. But in order to do so, they got to get past the city of Jericho. Jericho is a double-walled fortress of a city. And it's the gateway city to the rest of the land. If they can't get through Jericho, they're not going to make it. And so they're wandering through the desert. They're now on the other side of the Jordan River, and they are coming up against the city of Jericho. And God is teaching you and me some things through this attack on Jericho in kind of Joshua chapter 1 through Joshua chapter 7, things that apply to your life and my life right now. And that's what they're looking at. And we have to ask a question on your outline, if you'll take that out. There are four questions on here, and you can answer those questions at any point in time you want during the sermon. Four yes or no questions, and you can just decide on them and answer them at any, any point in time. But the first question that we're going to look at the scriptures and ask today is this, does God clearly state his plans? Does God clearly state his plans, yes or no? So first of all, we need to go all the way back, not in the book of Joshua, but we need to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 12, beginning with verse 2. He says some promises, he says some things to Abraham, and this is what he says to him. Verse 2, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Isn't it good to have a good name? A great name is what will make Abraham and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God makes this amazing promise. In fact, it's a sevenfold promises. There's actually seven specific statements that God uses in there when he makes this promise to Abraham, and God keeps his promises. And the first one is this. He says, I'll make you a great nation. The second one, I'll bless you. The third one, I'll make your name great. The fourth one, you'll be a blessing. The fifth one, I will bless those who bless you. And then God decides this, I will curse those who curse you, and all peoples will be blessed through you. How are they blessed through you? That ultimately through the line of Abraham would come the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, who would die for your sin and mine, that all nations, not just the nation of Israel, but through the nation of Israel, through the lineage and heritage of Israel, all nations of the earth would have the chance for salvation through faith in Christ. He says, I'm going to make this sevenfold promise to you. But one of the things that's so interesting is he says this, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So here, all the way back at the first book of the Bible, some people think, well, that's Old Testament. It doesn't apply today. I, I beg to disagree. The Bible is one complete story, and God tells that story all the way through. And one of the ways that he does it right here is he says this, of the nation of Israel, of Abraham and his offspring, God decided this. He said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So I would say to you and I today that you and I have to be very careful to filter our Middle East worldview and our foreign policy through this promise. And some of you are just like, how dare you say such a thing? I say, I didn't. God said it right here. And the blessing of God or the cursing of God on our nation is going to be as a direct result of our foreign policy concerning Israel. You say, how can that be? Because God decided and made a promise and God keeps 
his promises. He could have said, I will bless those nations that bless you, and I will curse those nations that curse you. Well, unless, of course, that nation's wealthy. Or, well, of course, unless that nation is self-sufficient. Or unless that nation has done some good things in the past, I might give them a pass. On. No. He says, listen, if you want it to go well in your nation, please understand the promises I've made in Scripture. That that's the way I'm going to walk in regard to other nations that either bless or curse you. Does God clearly say his plans? We have to go back then to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. He's giving instructions to the Israelite people. He says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. What's God going to do? He's telling them ahead of time, listen, I'm going to drive these nations out. Now, you'll be involved, but I'm going to do it. In fact, there are seven nations, and these nations are bigger than you, and they're stronger than you, but I'm going to be with you. These are far beyond your own ability, but I will be with you, and I will be the one driving them out ahead of you. I, I have promised you this land. I have given you this land, seven nations. So his seven promises come up against seven larger and stronger nations. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1, two chapters later, it says, Here, Israel, God is speaking. You are now about to cross the Jordan and go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you. Listen, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Does God make his plans clear? The first nation, first city that they come to is Jericho, that double-walled city, walls so large that people have their townhomes, their apartments in the wall. It's part of the structure and the infrastructure of the whole land. And these walls are not only defensive, but they're also places that they live. That's how wide these walls are and how tall they are. And they extend up to the sky. And God says, I am going to dispossess nations greater and stronger than you and take care of these cities that have walls up to the sky. So let me ask, does God clearly state his plans? Yes. Yes, he does. He said, well, what about my life? Does God say, put your faith and trust in me, and salvation is found through Christ alone? Yes. That's a promise he makes to you. What about, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Yes, God clearly states that. What about, a pro what about a thing letting you and I know what his will is? It is God's will that you avoid sexual immorality. Does he make that clear? Yes. What about other areas of God's will? That you and I are sanctified. We're set apart to be holy. What about that we are saved? What about that we suffer? We share in the sufferings of Christ. It's part of God's will. And sometimes you and I get in something that's hard like suffering, and we say, can this possibly be God's will for my life? Sometimes the answer is yes, but he says, listen, I will be with you and tear down those walls. This issue is bigger than you. It's stronger than you. You feel like you're suffering right now. How could God possibly be in it? God says, I know all about it. I know all about it. Does God clearly state his plans? He does. That's why it's so important for you and I to be in scripture. Because when life hits us, we need to understand what the will of God is in our life. Number two, the question is this, are God's plans usually unconventional? Are God's plans usually unconventional? 
when you think about what God does and you think about God tells people to do, it's, it's usually unconventional. It, 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 typically, when you think about what God asks you to do, oftentimes it doesn't make sense. Think about this for a minute. You think about God coming to you in Malachi chapter 3, telling you and I, bring the whole tithe, the tithe means the tenth, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. So God is saying, tithe. I want you to test me. I want you to test me to see that if you bring the tenth into my house, you return to me the first. And we're going to look at later at how God demands that Jericho, this first city, of all the cities they will conquer, of all the plunder they will take, everything in Jericho belongs to the Lord, the first. And God is saying, listen, give me the tenth, the first of your income. And God is saying, you test me with the tenth, and then I will make 90% stretch further than 100%. You say, that does not make sense. How in the world does giving God 10% make 90% stretch farther? And God says, it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to test you and ask you to test me. And some of you in this room, you're, you're looking right now and you're saying, oh my goodness, I, I'm shaking my head. Like I remember like when, when I came up to that road and I had to make a decision like that. Am I going to obey God? Am I going to test him or not? It seems really unconventional. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, some of you are like, oh, I'll pray for them, all right. I'm going to pray that, you know, like fire falls from heaven and, you know, gets them, right? You're like, God, kill them. And God says, no, no, no. You're to love your enemies. In fact, at one point he says, if someone hits you on the cheek, turn your other cheek to them, make it available as well. That doesn't make sense. What are you talking about, God? And then he asks you and I to forgive, to love our enemies, pray for those who, who persecute you, and you say, wait a minute, how, how can I do that? You know, how, how can I show the fruit of the Spirit? That's what love is, right? Love is an act of the will. It's, it's putting into motion, even if I don't feel like it, because I certainly don't. I mean, God, you know, this person's persecuting me. Why would I do something loving toward them? But could you give them the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can you have self-control when that person's persecuting you? Can you extend to them an act of love that's undeserved on their behalf? And God says you to love them. Not only that, you're to pray for them. And let me tell you what happens. Some of you are like, I will pray for them. But the truth is, when you and I pray for our enemies, oftentimes they don't change, but we do. Everything inside of us changes. We begin to have a compassion on them that just doesn't make sense. This from a Christ who was hanging on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When God asks you and I to do something, it's usually unconventional. In Matthew 18, 22, he says, forgive those who sin against you. And you go, that is so counterintuitive. I mean, Lord, don't you know the abuse that they've done? Don't you know how many times they have let me down? Don't you know how many times they have absolutely violated my trust? God, don't you know the number of things they've done against me? And the words that they have said over and over and over. And you go, okay, God, well, I'll try. I'll try. I'll, I'll forgive them once. 
Is that enough, God? Can I just forgive him once? God, can, what about twice? Maybe I, I love the three strikes rule, Lord. Maybe I can just forgive him three times, and then after that, forget you, right? And God says, no, you forgive them 70 times seven. You're not keeping track. He's just basically saying, forgive them like I forgave you. He said, I don't know if I can do that. I I certainly don't feel like it. And let me tell you, because I've had to walk the road to forgiveness, that forgiveness is an act of the will. It's like the engine of a train. And you say, I will choose to forgive. Those feelings come up, and you're like, oh, it hurts so bad. And you're like, I don't want to. And you say, I choose to. And it feels like nothing moved. But it began to get that train in motion. And your feelings are like the caboose. They're way down the track. They're way down there. But you begin to say, okay, I choose to forgive. And then the next time, that those feelings come up. It's like the, the wheels of the train. It's like that. And then the next time you go. You keep choosing. God, I choose to forgive. And that train gets in motion. And it gets in motion. And finally your feelings catch up to your act of the will. That's how forgiveness works. Some of you say, oh, I forgave them. But you realize there's still bitterness in your heart. You realize there's still sourness that comes up. There's still a grudge on the inside if you're being honest with yourself. But you're like, no, 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 I forgave them. And what you're saying is I one time chose to forgive them, but you've not processed that hurt. You process the hurt when every time it comes up, you make an act of the will. God, I can't do it. I don't feel like it. I'm going to choose to do it anyway. I don't feel like anything's changed. Okay, I'm going to choose to do it anyway. It's unconventional. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus gives a great commission to the church. And one of the things he tells them is to preach the gospel, but then he says to be baptized. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And some of you are like, seriously? You want me to get baptized? I have water terrors. I'm afraid of my hair getting messed up. You're like, that's very unconventional. Why would a person get up in front of all these people and get dunked underwater and raised up? baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, this last week we had, uh, in between services, we had eight children, probably under the age of 12, who made a decision for Christ, and they got baptized, and, um, and they, on video, we make sure that they understand what they're doing, and so on video, they tell, this is why I'm going to get baptized, and so they tell that testimony. In fact, then we make that video clip available to their parents so that 10 years later, when they're 18... They can say, I don't really know if I understood what I did back then when I was eight. And we say, here's the video clip. You in your own words saying what you understood at the time. And they took that step to be baptized, to model in front of everybody that I have decided to follow Jesus. And I'm being, I'm associating with his death, his burial, his resurrection to new life. And that's the only way by which someone is saved. Not through baptism, but through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Our God's plans, usually unconventional? Absolutely. Well, why does God do that? Does God test your faith? Yes or no? Does God test your faith? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, some of the favorite passages for some people, it says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. 
See, what our culture does is we say we want to love the Lord, but we also want to be wise in our own eyes, and we're going to do as our culture does. So we want to live like the culture. We want to live like we love the Lord. And, and, and the Lord says, no, 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 it's unconventional. In fact, I want to test you because the issue is, am I going to trust God's way or my way? Am I going to trust his understanding of life or am I going to trust my own understanding of life? The issue is, who's going to be God in your life? Am I going to do what pleases him or am I going to live as I please? Am I going to be straight out of Compton or am I going to be straight out of the Bible? I mean, let me just tell you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to pick on some people here, and I don't know who has or hasn't done this, but I can't imagine that a believer in Jesus Christ would actually go see that movie. All you got to do is read a review to go, there's over 600 curse words in there. The Lord's name is abused in that movie over 12 times. But sometimes we just do as we please or because everybody else is doing or out of curiosity or we don't even maybe have a good reason. And sometimes you might see something like that and it just shows we've already been desensitized to the Lord's understanding, the Lord's ways versus our own. And please hear me with humility. There are other areas where I make the same concessions. And I got to say, God, I... In humility, I need to stop leaning on my understanding, my ways. God, i got to begin to lean on your ways. And all of us in this room, in the same way, we need to begin to say who in our lives is going to be God. He is going to test us. And he's typically going to test us with where you and I are weak because he wants to help make us strong. He wants to reveal for us our need for him. It's a test of grace. It's not him playing games with humanity or people. It's not him saying you're not good enough or look how you messed up. I was just waiting for you to mess up and I tested you and there, look at there, you did. That's not what he does. He's saying out of grace, out of humility, I want to help you live straight out of the Bible because my way will make your path straight. My understanding is how you should live. I, you should fear me, which means respect me and shun evil. Does God test you? Yeah, well, why would he do that? Why would God test you and I? Because he wants to test you and I, and he wants to test our faith because he wants to get the glory. Now, we share in the glory because we've participated in the event or the stretching of our faith with him, but ultimately, God gets the glory. So does God get the glory, yes or no? Well, let me play this out for you for a minute. Some of you in this room, you're like, really? It doesn't make any sense. You want me to tithe? Then I'm going to give 10% and you're going to make 90% stretch farther. And then you decide, all right, I've just come to the point in my faith where God says, test him, so I'm going to do it. And you're scared, and you take this leap of faith, and you have to negotiate with your spouse, like, maybe can God both bring us to the point where we're ready to just take this leap? And we do it, and then we begin to watch God do what only God can do, and it doesn't make sense. And we're like, how in the world did that work? God gets the glory. You begin to go, there is no way. We tried to manage ourselves for years and look where that got us. But now, God, we're going to honor you at the first. And we begin to see, and some of you in this room, you're shaking your heads and nodding, you're smiling because you remember that moment of panic, don't you? Remember that moment of like, okay, I'm finally there. I'm finally going to give the tenth. And then you watch God do what only God could do. And let me just say, I have no idea who gives what in this church. None. Some of you in this room, it's a test to forgive. It's that test. God's saying, I'm just going to test you. Are you willing to forgive someone else 
because I've forgiven you everything. Are you willing to do that? And, and are you going to choose to forgive that person who sinned against you? When you obey God and you begin to walk through that, that process of the train, every time you choose and make that act of the will and it moves forward, every time you do that in that caboose of your feelings catches up, suddenly your heart, your compassion gets engaged and you begin to realize because I've walked the path of forgiveness in this person, now I'm free from bitterness. I'm free from the power that person had over me. That when I interact with them or I see them, they no longer have the power that they once did. Because I've submitted that power to the Lord. I've forgiven. I've found freedom. I don't let grudges or bitterness or past woundedness harm me anymore. Will that spot be sensitive? Absolutely. Will that hard season and that hard experience with that person, will that leave a mark like the ring on a tree? Yes. But the tree kept growing beyond it. Are we forever changed? Yes. Do we understand God's grace even better? Yes. God gets the glory. Some of you, it's you need to give your life to Christ and you need to be baptized. And, and, and let me just be honest with you. Some of you in this room, you know about giving your life to Christ, but you also know why in the world would I do that? Like I haven't done that yet. You know you haven't done that yet. And let's just be honest. Most of the world knows that you're a rotten person. You're foul mouth, you lust all the time, you're greedy, you're kind of a scoundrel, you're mean. But then what happens? You finally say, okay, I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. And you do, and you surrender you to him. And he begins to change things in you that you have not been able to change. And people look on the outside and they say, how in the world did you go from being that guy or gal to this person? And what happens is you begin to reflect, God gets the glory. He's the one who's changed me. My life is different. I am free. And you begin to change because God gets the glory. In this book, God tells the nation of Israel, here's the military plan. For six days, get all couple million of you, and you go and you march around the city one time, and you don't say a word, you're quiet, you just march right around it. And then you go back and camp in the desert again for six days straight, once a day. And then the, the city of Jericho is locked up. They are afraid of you. And they come out and these people surround your city and they go back and camp in the desert. And you're like, is this it? And they're all ready with all their weapons and nothing happens. But on the seventh day, you're to go around it seven times. And on the seventh time, you're to shout. And then God's going to give you the city. Well, let me just be honest with you. If you're in the armed forces of Israel... And Joshua says, hey, I heard from the Lord this. Here's the plan. And you look at it on paper, you're going, this is, this is it? Seems a little, uh, <clears throat> pardon the phrase, unconventional. But it is. God's saying, I'm going to ask you to do something unconventional, and are you going to believe me? I'm going to test your faith to see if you will obey. Will you follow? Will you run away? What are you going to do? Are you going to follow me? Will you obey? Will you run away? What are you going to do? And God does that with you, and he does that with me. Some of you, have, this story will be familiar, but when we were looking at acquiring this building, I had just come from a meeting, an elder meeting early in the morning with the elders of our church and some of our building committee, and literally this packet of paper had been put together that was about as thick as my Bible and, and shoved across the table to us and just said, this is the risk, and this is the work we'd have to do with the city and with the county and with the zoning and with the banks and all these things that we have to do. And not only that, beyond that, there's huge risk. It could risk our, what we own, and it could risk our assets, and it could risk everything could come 
come apart here, and, and this huge stack of paper is shoved across me, and I, I'm just telling you, I left that meeting totally overwhelmed. Completely. I mean, I just left it feeling like, you know, it's like going to counseling the first time. You're like, oh my goodness. Am I ever going to get better, right? Shoved across to me, and, and right there, I just am like, it, it's beyond me. I, I just, I'm so overwhelmed. So I thought, I'm going to drive from our old offices over here to the parking lot, and I'm going to pray about it. And so I just bring him over. I've got those papers with me. And I just start praying to the Lord, and the Lord's like, um, I want you to go on those stairs halfway out the building here and pray to me there. Uh, you need to realize, upstairs here, there are people jogging and working out, looking out those windows, which means if I'm halfway up the stairs, four feet away are people running, going, what the heck is that guy doing outside on the stairs? Right? It might be the owner of the building. I don't know. And I'm like, Lord, you're everywhere at once. You can be all places. It's no different if I'm here than if I'm there, right? And he's like, no, you need to go out there. He's asked me to do something very unconventional. So I go out, I take those papers with me, and I just kneel down out there on the stairs, and I just lay those papers out before the Lord, and I said, Lord, this is your job to get this done. These are the walls, and they're yours. Because if they're up to me, we're in big trouble. I'm completely overwhelmed, and as I remembered who God is, the size of the walls begin to shrink. And God said, I can handle that pile of paper. You just watch me. I got to tell you, as we begin to walk that process, why would God let us make a best and final offer and come in third place, which means we don't get a chance in the building? Why would God make us change the zoning and go through that, that risk of some money to actually change the zoning so this could be a church, that we could own this place? Why would God do all these things and, and, and then to have a stall and wait and not get it and wait six weeks and then finally have the chance to be in first place to get in the building? And it's because we otherwise would pat ourselves on the back. I get the glory. Look at how much we did. Look at how good we looked to the banks. Look at what we did with the city. Look at how we got our act together and how professional our papers looked. No, God was like, I'm going to do it unconventionally because you will know that I did this, not you. God gets the glory. Doesn't he? And that's what he's doing in your life and my life because God's not just into taking a building that used to be a place of self-worship of working out in a gym and making it into a house of worship. In the same way, God is doing that in your life. You are all about living as you please. You're all about your understanding. You're all about your ways, not God's ways. And God says, I'm going to take that old gymnasium and I'm going to make it into a house of worship in your life. And that's the process you knew, but in order to do it, he's going to test you. And he's going to grow your faith in him. Well, God does something even better. If you look with me at Joshua chapter 2, a little earlier in this passage, they send some spies into Jericho. And the spies get discovered. And they run away and they hide. And so they hide in the house of a prostitute. Where do they think the, the Hebrew people, least likely place for them to be is at Rahab's house because she's a prostitute. Whether that was just because it was a good job or whether that was because of the demand and the wickedness of life just caused her to have to make ends meet that way. That's what her job was. And so they run to the house of a prostitute and she helps them. She could have she blown them up. She could have totally just, you know, called for the cops. But what she did is she hid them away. And then after they came and checked for them and they were hid and they left, she let them down out the wall. Her house was in the wall. And so she let them back out of the city. But before doing so, this conversation takes place in Joshua chapter 2, verse 12. She says, 
Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men who had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside in the house, in the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are inside the house with you, their blood will be on their head if a hand, uh, our, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell them what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you have made us swear. Agreed. She replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now I want to just point something out to you. She lives in the wall. And the deal these guys make with her is get all your family and get together in your house, which by the way is in the wall. And they know ahead of time that God has said, I'm going to shake the walls down, right? This may not be a good deal if you're Rahab. Just to be honest with you, she may not have the foreknowledge of how God is planning to destroy the city, but her house is in the wall, and now God somehow is bound by this deal that the Israelites have made with this woman who lives in the wall. Joshua chapter 6, verse 15 says this, On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that it in it are to be devoted to the Lord. It's the first, the first city of conquest, and God says, it's mine. You honor me with the first and he said this, only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. What did a prostitute of one of these strong nations have to offer anybody? What would save her? Nothing but faith in the Lord. That's the only thing she had to offer was faith in the Lord. Her actions couldn't earn away. It's her faith in the Lord, and it was demonstrated through her actions. But she hid them, and God spares them. God spares them. So all the walls fall down. They all shake down. And here's Rahab's house with her relatives in it, standing as a sign that God will honor those who put their faith and their trust in him. Though all the walls around them have fallen down, hers stood as a standing symbol of the faithfulness of God. But it gets better. Later on, as it, the promise was made, to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through your lineage, through you, so that Jesus Christ would eventually come as a heritage of your family tree. And as it comes all the way down there, you're going to realize that all nations now have the chance to be blessed by putting their faith, faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So and the whole world, we're all going to be blessed through you and have opportunity to be saved just like a prostitute. But it gets even better. 
Because when you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, in the genealogy you always have this father and this son, and this father and this son, and this was the father of this guy, and this was the father of this guy. And then you get to Matthew 1, chapter 5, and it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. One of the things I love about Christ is that he doesn't hide anything in his heritage. In fact, there are two women in his heritage, in his family line, who are named, and one of them is a prostitute. One of them would have no reason to be there. Not only that, but there's only two women named. In those days, it was always father, son, father, son, father, son, father, that's your family tree. But in the genealogy of Christ, you've got Rahab named personally because of her faith and her trust. And I love this because the family line of Christ would involve messy people like you and like me. Isn't that good news? Why? Because God gets the glory. Who gets the glory out of that? God gets the glory. And his promise is fulfilled. All people will be blessed through you. All people includes prostitutes. All people includes sinners. All people includes people who've been unfaithful. All people includes you and me. And maybe today you realize as you've been asking questions about the walls that you're facing, God, are you going to carry out your promises? Are you going to show up? Are you asking me to do something totally unconventional? Are you asking me to do something that all my friends and all my counselors and everybody else, they're leaning on their own understanding, but you're telling me to do something different. Maybe for some of you here today, you have a decision to make. Will you obey God's unconventional plan? Some of you need to forgive. You need to finally let go of that. Some of you need to tithe. And you need to just finally say, okay, God, I'm going to test you in this. It's unconventional, but I'm making that decision today. Some of you need to confess Christ Confess your sin. Confess him as Lord. Some of you need to give your life to Christ and you need to be baptized and you need to say, okay, uh, you know, I need to schedule a baptism here and I, I've been an adult and, and my kids are watching actually and I need to finally just get over it and I need to get in that tank and publicly declare that I associate my life with what Jesus Christ did on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that I'm his and do it in front of all these people. And not just rely on the counsel of somebody else, but for you to have a believer's baptism that you say, I chose, I believed, and therefore I believe and I'm baptized. And I make that public declaration. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, so you're thinking only of your life, I just know that God's Holy Spirit today has been talking to you. And he's drawing you to a decision point. In fact, for many of you, it's a test. That today he's just saying, honestly, I'm... I'm not playing games with you, but I'm testing your faith. Are you going to do it your way or will you do it my way? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ already, then you're at a decision point. And I want you to actually just silently verbalize in your heart that decision that you choose as an act of the will to make in obedience to the Father today. Will you tell him what that decision is you're going to make? There are others of you in the room right now, and you know 
you know your life, you know the mess you've been in, you know, the, you know the condition of your life, you know what you know in your head, but you know that God is drawing you in your heart to surrender your life to him, to accept Jesus Christ as Lord in your life. And if today that is the day for you, then you simply pray a prayer just silently where you're sitting. You just repeat this after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I believe you died on the cross, that you were buried, that you rose to new life, that you will forgive my sin. I ask you to make me a new creation on the inside. I believe that you are God. And I'm putting my faith in you. Like a prostitute would see the power of the Lord and choose that power, I put my faith in Jesus, you as Lord. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. God, we're so grateful for who you are. We love you. We thank you that you extend yourself to people like us who have, who have prostituted ourselves, who have given into culture, who have lived on our own understanding, but that, God, you would call us out of that darkness, out of that powerful delusion, and into your marvelous light. God, we love you, and we thank you for what you're doing here among us. Will you give it up for what God is doing with us and among us? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.